0: This is Decoding Learning Differences with Kimberly Lavelle, and this episode is Educating the Different Learner, Dyslexia. So we are talking today about how to educate a child with dyslexia, what is most absolutely completely important, um, and I would love your feedback on how much you were surprised by, how much you agreed with, disagreed with, anything. So first of all, because of the way that, what, from what we know about dyslexia and learning differences in general, someone who is struggling to learn something, whether it is reading, math, kicking a soccer ball, they're struggling more than others with other, who are otherwise peers, similar, then they need systematic, explicit, repetitive and somewhat frequent instruction in the area that they're struggling with. So for a child with dyslexia, they need systematic, explicit. That is, so let me go back up. Systematic. There is a system in place. I, as in, I have a way that I'm going to teach it. I have an order in mind of how I want to teach it. And it can vary. But there is something in place. It's not just, oh, today we're working on this and tomorrow we're working on this. and it, There is a, a well-thought-out structure and system and approach and strategies and cueing or tools or whatever it is as part of the system. So it is systematic. It is explicit, meaning the child doesn't just have to figure it out. It's not about the discovery process. As fun as that is, and as great as that is, as an educational tool in some settings, when we're trying to teach certain skills that someone is lacking, they need to be told explicitly without any vagary, (laughs) not sure if that's a word, super clearly, they need to be told, this is this. AR says R, right? super clear. It needs to be repetitive. Every day we practice that AR says r until they've got it completely. And then we put AR into words and practice reading AR in words, all of this, right? And it needs to be frequent. The thing that we know about children with learning differences, struggles, is that typically once is not enough, And the longer they go between instruction and reinforcement and reinforcement and instruction, the, the more they'll forget and have to be retaught again. So ideal multiple times a day, you're practicing a particular skill that's new and you're trying to get in their head multiple times a week, at least once a week. Once a week, you're going to struggle to make much progress. It's, it's really hard to make progress if you're not seeing a child minimum two times a week, really intensive in that time. But the more frequent that help is provided, the more progress the child can make. Now, of course, frequent does not mean that it has to be a long duration. When I'm saying multiple times a day, I'm saying if we're working on AR says R. If I can hit that in morning, lunch, at dinner by having this teacher practice it here, the interventionist practice it here, mom practice it at home. I've hit it three times a day in 2 seconds. Hey, what does AR say? R. Great. Here's your peas. <laughs> if they love peas, um so frequent doesn't have to have a long duration. Just frequent, the the, the frequency is more important than the duration that the lesson occurs in. Which I'll come back to in a second, because I want to hit that again. So it is systematic, explicit, repetitive, frequent instruction in phonics, phonemic awareness, and morphology. Minimum. There are plenty of other things that children with dyslexia benefit from instruction in. Minimum, pretty much everybody with dyslexia needs those three things. Phonics, this letter, this sound, they go together. The set of letters, this one sound goes together. We blend these sounds to make this word. The word gets broken apart. I'm spelling it. The the letter sound correspondence is phonics. Phonemic awareness is the, those individual letter sounds and being able to manipulate the sounds. You can do this with letters, without letters. There's controversy on which one is more effective. The research I've looked at mostly says with letters is actually more effective, but different kids with dyslexia, different disabilities or differences, you're going to have different profiles and some kids will do better with one versus another. So I'm not saying it has to be one way or the other. But phonemic awareness, knowing what to do with those sounds, you're blending the sounds, you're segmenting the sounds, you're deleting the sounds, like actually just taking a sound out. You're adding a sound in. Adding a sound in is help. Well, let's do both. If I think about suffixes or prefixes, but let's focus on suffixes because it usually gets taught first because we have words like jumps. Well, jumps without the s is jump, and knowing that a root word plus a suffix helps us know the spelling of that word is very helpful. So, being able to delete out a sound to spell the rest of it is very helpful. Jumping without the ing is jump, but then same thing, adding sounds spelled jump with ing at the end, jump ing right? Or say, and then later you can spell it. So all of that is helpful in figuring out how to read it, how to spell it. Um, so that's phonemic awareness. So we're good done instruction in letter sound correlations, phonics, phonemic awareness. What are we doing with the sounds? Morphology has to do with the meaning. So now I'm using those suffixes and talking about how adding that S changes the meaning cat, I've got a picture in my head. Cats. Well, now that picture just multiplied itself. Now I've got a whole bunch of those little things running in my head, right? So it changes the meaning of the word. Cat and s are both morphemes. They both have meaning. And knowing that again, helps us with spelling, helps us with reading. For example, jumped. Sounds like it should be J-U-M-P-T. But because of morphology and what the ED means as changing a word to past tense, I know that I'm using ED to spell jumped and not a T. So breaking it apart and using the morphology helps us understand all of that. Knowing all of this helps us to understand things. Some of us know it without having been explicitly taught it. We saw it enough. We were exposed to enough that we implicitly learned the information. Kids with dyslexia typically need the explicit instruction. Lots of repetition and practice frequently in a systematic way so that they can get all of those pieces and understand how the English language works and apply it and read it and spell it and have success. (sighs) Now, most people will say that the instruction should be multi-sensory. The research I've looked at thus far does not Prove that multisensory is better. Conceptually, it totally makes sense that multisensory is better. Orton Gillingham is a multi-sensory approach. I love multisensory approaches. I tend to use a multisensory approach. So far, so far, there is no research that says the instruction has to be multi-sensory in order to benefit the child. So Can it be? Absolutely. Does it have to be? We're not sure yet. I would err on the side of multisensory unless the multisensory is impacting the child's ability to access. Like if it's too much, it's overwhelming them and they need something a little more simple. Sometimes the more simple is better. Now you might still be multisensory, but maybe you're only, maybe you're not doing multiple senses all at the same time. Um, you know, you're not having them f- use a, for example, a multi-sensory lesson, for those on the video, I'm hol- um, on audio, I'm holding up a Lego base plate. So I might use this with my students to say, AR says R, let's trace it out. A, R, R, A, R, R. A R R. I think you can hear, I am tracing on this board. So I am saying it, I am seeing myself write it. I've seen it on the screen or written on a board somewhere and I'm feeling it tactile on this bumpy plate. I can also use the other side for a different, um, feel, different texture. I knew all of that at once. And for some kids I busted this out and I just lost them. Right? they, that multi-sensory distracted them from actually getting the input. Now, a lot of times when you keep using the same tool, it loses its like novelty, it's fun, it's excitement, and therefore it starts being useful again. (laughs) Sometimes you have to kind of wait it out. Other times it's better to just not have them do it. You can focus on seeing it. A-R-R, A-R-R, A-R-R. And then later, maybe you bring out ARR, ARR, ARR. So they've kind of seen it in one setting. They're feeling it in another setting. They're saying it in both settings. And maybe another time you just have them say it to just kind of really give them less and less so they're not too overwhelmed. For some kids, every kid is different, which is one of the reasons why I love Orton Gillingham approach that the not the Orton Gillingham programs, but the actual like tutoring, the programs are great too. But the thing I'm saying I love is the ability to really individualize and everybody's going to have a different experience and a different set of lessons and a different everything. Because even though we've got these skills that we're trying to teach and an overall methodology that we're using, part of our methodology is just the individualization of the lessons. So, and it's not just Orton Gillingham, there are others that do the same concept. And that's really what I would be recommending and looking for is really individualized instruction, no matter what your child's difficulty is, the more individualized it is, the more successful they are likely to be. (sighs) Let's talk about what does not work. We know especially so I'm guessing if you're listening to this podcast, you've already listened to the phenomenal podcast, uh, sold a story, right? If you haven't go check it out, it's really well done. Um, it's captivating and it's like, oh my gosh. And she's got other ones that she's done before. It's great information. It's investigative. It's, it's interesting. And it paints the picture of the ways in which children have been wronged. And the most recent, no, maybe not the most recent, one of the most recent episodes of it, it was like a special extra episode, was about dyslexia specifically. And they kind of brought in some old content to put this together. So basically, if you've listened to this, you already know this. If you listen to that episode or that podcast, you've already heard some of this. Um, we know that it does not work to teach a child the three cueing method. It really doesn't work for any child. Um, If you notice when kids start learning to read a typical child who's learning how to read will already (laughs) guess based on picture cues. They'll look at the picture naturally to figure out what that word is. They might also use some of the letters. So they start the word and they look at the picture and they come up with something that makes sense to them that happens naturally. We don't have to teach them and it's not really what we want to teach them. We want to teach them that the letters are there for a reason. They actually do provide information on what the word is. They tell us how to sound out the word or figure out what it is in cases where it's not really about the sounds as much as representing a meaning. That's that morphological piece where you need to know that part of the English language, is based on morphemes where this unit means this, and it's pronounced differently in different words, but the meaning is the same. So that also looking at etymology, the the history of a word's meaning and its spelling helps us to understand why it's spelled the way it is. Um, So back to what it does not work. It does not work to do the three queuing method or anything where you're just encouraging a kid to look around and guess at what the word is, that doesn't work. Um, Another thing that doesn't work is just handing kids books and hoping that they learn by osmosis. I don't know. They um, do need that explicit instruction in phonics, phonemic awareness, morphology, any curriculum that is not doused in that is not going to be effective. Um, The one of my concerns with So in in like the homeschooling community, there's a philosophy of unschooling, which we've talked about on the podcast in the past. I love a lot of that philosophy and it can work with this as well. But in the extreme, there are people who are like, oh, kids, they'll just learn how to read um, by being read to. There are kids who will learn how to read by being read to. They're not dyslexic. (laughs) They're not the ones I'm talking about right now most kids need some kind of instruction, some kind of explicit instruction. I absolutely want it to be when they're interested, when they're engaged, I want them to be intrinsically motivated to learn how to read. And it needs to still, like it needs, there has to be some kind of structured, explicit, repetitive, Frequent instruction for a child with dyslexia to be able to learn how to read successfully if they are not provided with that And they're just like taught something and then nothing else They will start to get frustrated. They're not learning how to read like everyone else. They'll assume that they are unintelligent They'll call themselves names. They'll, they'll, their self-esteem will suffer and as a defense They will say they don't want to learn how to read So you have to be very careful with that. If a child is interested and then suddenly refusing, what happened in between? Did they not get enough encouragement in the form of systematic, explicit, repetitive, and frequent instruction in phonics, phonemic awareness and morphology so that they could be successful in learning how to read? Again, I don't want anything shoved down a child's throat. I want them to be successful and interested on their own but i also want i want them to understand how to read um and finding success will help them to be motivated and interested and engaged and begging for more so please help your child by doing those things (sighs) okay so it does not work to just hand a book to a kid It does not work to simply read to a child. It does not work to teach them how to guess. It does not work to focus on reading comprehension strategies when the act of reading words is what is struggling, um, making them struggle. One other thing that does not fully work is focusing too much on fluency. When we put too much of a focus on a child's reading fluency, we tend, so we we tend to neglect some other things. For example, I often see IEP goals that are the child will read a first grade curriculum at 60 words per minute with 90% accuracy. The kid meets the goal. We say, oh, great. They know how to read a first grade text. Wait a minute. They were at 90% accuracy. That means one out of every 10 words they didn't know how to read. So they can't read a first grade text except at 90% accuracy. And that's not an independent reading level. So 95% is considered independent reading level, even by the people who like who do the strategies. We don't love as much. So, sorry, (laughs) I'm trying to, trying to formulate how to say this. So, The fluency, when we focus too much on read it fast and only 90% accurate, then we're allowing for tons of mistakes to be practiced. We're also encouraging them to basically just skip over words they don't know so that they can just be faster. And that's not good reading. We want them to go slow to know the word. We want them to repeat what they just read to reinforce the correct reading of that sentence. We want them to then work on intonation and pacing. So we want good fluency, but true fluency, reading with appropriate expression and intonation and pacing so that they, their reading makes sense to them, to someone they're reading to, that it it has meaning. They understand the meaning. And they're showing that meaning by how they're reading it. They're reading it with meaning. If we focus too much on the child will be this accurate, and at this speed, we may be neglecting to systematically, repetitively, frequently, explicitly teach phonics, phonemic awareness, and morphology. So how do you get the school to provide proper instruction? Now, thanks to podcasts like sold the story, um, hopefully this one and other, other sources more and more parents know what schools were supposed to know over 20 years ago with that national reading panel study done in 2000, I believe what we were supposed to, what schools were supposed to have known 20 plus years ago, parents are now learning and parents are then driving change in schools. Yes, it's not how it's supposed to work, but to be completely honest, sometimes in the school, you are in a little bit of an echo chamber where everyone's saying and reinforcing the same things. They're being sold these glamorous curriculums, which the state is approving and saying, this is an approved curriculum and it uses these methods that we don't like and are not good. I'm saying, they're using messages that we don't like and are not good. The state doesn't realize it. The school doesn't really realize it because they didn't read the national reading panel report and they haven't yet listened to sold the story because they're super busy. They're working 50, 60, 70 hours a week trying to get lesson plans done and things prepped and things graded and tests done and reports written. and, And their focus is on how to educate the 30 kids in their classroom or the 700 kids in their school or, The 3,000 kids in their school district or whatever it is, they are, they are busy. They are busy in the day-to-day and sometimes don't have the time, space, capacity to go looking for what they don't know. They don't realize they don't know it. They think that they're doing things that are great because it's in the curriculum and it was approved by the state and my uh, curriculum, you know, my credentialing program taught me this and all of these things, they don't know what they don't know. So when you come in with new information, don't come in, assuming that the school is just being neglectful or trying to do anything malicious or don't that they don't have your child's best interest at heart. I do believe that they do almost always, but there are things that they don't know and they need to know. So come in as a team member and say, Hey, I've noticed you're using Fontes and Pinnell as an intervention. And I know you probably spent so much money on that program and I know it's beautiful and it's got all these great books and it just seems so wonderful. But have you looked at this research and Don't fight them on it. Give them the space to look at it and assume the best in the school. They might not do anything yet. Come back to it. You can start as kindly as possible going to school board meetings and really letting the district know that it is a concern, that you care, that you want to see them do better. You know that, you know, it costs them a lot of money, so it's hard for them to then switch to something else. You can have these conversations and assume the best. Now, that's on a bigger, bigger picture, right? For your individual kid, you've got an IEP. Hopefully, if your child needs specific instruction, then hopefully your child is on an IEP. If not, go back and listen to an episode about how to get your child an IEP. Get on that as soon as possible. And then during the IEP meeting, they're going... They're going to be going over goals and accommodations and services. Now it is hard in most IEPs to get them to use any particular anything. Some of them, I have seen IEPs written that says they're going to provide Linda Mood Bell seeing stars or they're going to provide Wilson. Some schools will do that. Most will not because they don't have to. And in some ways it's better not to but what will drive their instruction is the goals. If a goal is well-written, they have to instruct the child to meet that goal. So the goal can drive that perfect instruction that you want. So making sure you have phonics goals, phonemic awareness goals and morphology goals means your child is being taught phonics, phonemic awareness and morphology. Get rid of the fluency goal. It's not that they're not sometimes helpful a little bit, but they're not teaching the child phonics, phonemic awareness or morphology, or making sure that their child has those skills. So pull those, get those goals into the IP. That's where you wanna focus your efforts is if the goal is in there, you know your child has to get that instruction. That's the number one. Now you can absolutely ask for an Orton-Gillingham program. You can absolutely ask for whatever it is that you have researched and you think is best and great. You can ask how much, um, instruction the teacher who is providing it has had. You can ask all sorts of things. You can be as confrontational as you want to be. Um, but I, I would focus your first efforts on those goals because even if the district won't put any of the rest of it in the IEP, if you've got really good goals, your child is off to a great start of the teacher got to figure out how to teach those things. Now, sometimes they're going to be like, no, this, I, I recently was helping on a case where the school was like, no, this goal, this fluency goal covers all of that because if they meet this goal, it means that they can do all those skills. It does not. It absolutely does not. It absolutely does not. So, that. So go back, listen to my episode on goals and apply that information to phonics goals, phonemic awareness goals, morphology goals, get those in the IEP. At least one of each would be awesome. Sometimes for the really littles, it would just be the phonemic awareness or just the phonics and phonemic awareness. Um, You might not get to morphology yet. Your child may also have great phonemic awareness at this point and only need phonics and morphology or something like that. So it doesn't necessarily have to be all three every time. Okay. So you've got an IEP and things are great or you're homeschooling and you're doing what you can do, but you also want to give your child more. You have the funds, you have the financial means, and you want to give your child more. You would like to hire an outside tutor to give extra instruction. What, what do you look for? What tutor is best? I see this all the time. Is it Barton better? Or is Wilson better? Or is Orton-Gillingham better? Okay. So Barton and Wilson and many others are Orton-Gillingham based, which means they looked at all the Orton-Gillingham research from over a hundred years ago. <laughs> Originally, I think it, well, no, I mean, some of it started. So, and then it's been progressing and progressing. There's updated stuff. It's been around a long time. So they looked at all that information and they created a program based on it. And it's somewhat scripted. Um, Like Barton is very scripted. And Wilson, very structured. And again, they give a very explicit structure to more of a methodology that Orton Gillingham is more of a methodology. It isn't, it doesn't already, have the structure. There's also then Orton Gillingham tutors that are trained by an academy that might provide them with a structure of how a lesson would go, what order of skills you're teaching, and what you're teaching, and how you're teaching different things. But then you individualized it based on every kid. So all of those are excellent, fantastic, might just work for your kid. They also might not. It depends on your kid. Now I will say, if you have an equally priced, equally available, um, equally charismatic, engaging set of tutors, one is Barton, one is Wilson, one is Orton-Gillingham. I would pick the Orton-Gillingham because it's more adaptive. It can work with your kid a little bit more individually. However, a really boring, mean Orton-Gillingham tutor, is a thumbs down compared to a really engaging and fun Barton tutor. Learning is fun. We want it to be engaging. We want it to be appropriately challenging, but not ever make the child feel like they're incompetent in any way. So we're, we're looking for those things. We're looking for someone who's engaging, who connects well with your child, who's charismatic in some way, you know, in that way of like engaging with your child, not like anything beyond that. We just want them to be able to build a rapport with your child so the the child feels safe to try things out, to fail, and know that they're always going to get encouragement to just keep going. They're doing amazing, right? So you're looking for that quality more than anything. You're also looking for the, the tutor's ability to individualize, that they can individually see where your child is struggling. And they can individually give appropriate instruction in those different things. They can also see, oh, they, you know, like I was talking about the multisensory, they're kind of overwhelmed by too much multisensory. So we're going to quiet it down and do this and separate skills out or they're easily distracted and they need more stimulation to stay focused. You want someone who can kind of adapt and do those different things, which is hard to find without, like until you're in it. Right. But you can ask a lot of these questions. You can also see the way that the tutor talks about themselves and what they provide. Um, I, currently have an opening or two. If you want to email me, if that's something you're looking for, um, I do do some virtual tutoring and I'm currently have an opening or two maybe. So if you want to jump on that, you can email me Kimberly at decodinglearningdifferences.com. Today's takeaway children with dyslexia need explicit and systematic instruction at a high rate of frequency. we're repeating things, we're doing it explicitly, we're doing it systematically. The instruction is in phonics, phonemic awareness, and morphology. Minimum. It may or may not be multisensory. If you want to schedule a call to see if we're a good fit, if I can help you figure out anything going on in your child's educational world, Please email me, Kimberlin at decodinglearningdifferences.com. We'll just start that conversation and just see what's, what's, what is it that you need the most that I can provide best for you. Have a fabulous day and I will see you again next week.